Hi, this is Birsu. Welcome to No Women, No Peace, episode 3. Today, we will be speaking with Julie Bidot and Claudia Seymour, and we'll be speaking about humanitarian work. I felt really inspired during this episode, and I'm grateful to share this conversation with you. Hello, everyone. So could you both perhaps introduce yourselves and the countries you worked in and what you're doing right now? Claudia? Okay, well, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation and for having us here. Um, so my name is Claudia Seymour, and I guess my current identity on my signature anyway is I'm a senior researcher with the Center for Conflict Development and Peacebuilding at the Graduate Institute. I'm also a lecturer, and the course that I, I teach is called On quote, unquote, doing good ethics, power, and privilege in international engagement. Um, and this class is a bit of the continuation of my entire sort of professional life experience as a humanitarian, as a recovering humanitarian, I like to say, as a protection actor working in conflict zones. Um, and I've, I've been in, in many countries, but I think the majority of my, my career has been in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, working primarily in child protection and on youth peace and security related issues. So that's a start and at least gives you a a place to know where um, my answers to the questions that we'll be talking about today come from. Perhaps over to Julie. Yes, hi, thank you for having me. I'm very uh, you know, delighted to be here with you today and to uh, discuss these important issues. I'm, my name is Julie Billot and I am um, an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the Graduate Institute. I'm not uh, as uh, experienced as Claudia in the field of humanitarian action. I've worked a little bit as a humanitarian worker a long time ago. It was 20 years ago, actually, uh, for a small French medical organization that at the time was called Aide Médicale Internationale, which doesn't which no longer exists actually. Um, now it has, um, it, it, is, it has been renamed and uh, it's been kind of transformed, but for this small um, medical NGO, I worked um, as a project coordinator a bit in Thailand and Myanmar on the Thai-Myanmar border, actually in Karen refugee camps. I've worked also a little bit in Cambodia in Afghanistan. So it was not a, a very long experience. It was an experience of three years. And after that, I decided I should go back to university and think about humanitarian action more deeply. So that's a bit my background. But I am a researcher, I'd say, of um, humanitarianism. I've carried out research in Afghanistan uh, in the post-war, so-called post-war reconstruction period after the fall of the Taliban regime. Um, and more recently, I've studied, well, the diplomatic culture of the International Committee of the Red Cross, both at the headquarters in Geneva, but also in various fields of operation where the ICRC intervenes. So that's, that's what I can say about me. Perfect. Thank you so much to both of you to like, it, it's, it's delightful to have you both. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this discussion together. So maybe we can start as talking about what exactly is humanitarian work, because I've been taking the comparative humanitarianisms class with Julie, and uh, we're looking at different kind of approaches of looking at humanitarianism. So could you maybe start with that a bit? Okay, right. So, so how to define humanitarianism? Actually, it's a very good question. Perhaps uh, you know, a definition that I, I like is, uh, is the one of Miriam Tiktin. She, she describes humanitarianism as an ethos, um, a cluster of sentiments, a set of laws, a moral imperative to intervene and a form of government. So what I like about this definition is that it combines together, you know, humanitarianism being simult simultaneously a form of care and a mode of governing population. So, so it enables us to think humanitarianism beyond um, mainstream international humanitarian organization, because indeed humanitarianism is not in my view only a sphere of action that is limited to these mainstream NGOs and international organizations, states, uh, concerned citizens, the private sector, religious communities, all these actors are involved in humanitarian work, I'd say. 
Yes, and that's wonderful, Julia. I love I love that definition, and and it's and it's uh, it's interweaving that brings it all together. And as you've said um, so eloquently, it's it's a way of being as well. Um, and so we have it on the, all the different levels and all the different modes of of doing it. Um, but one of the uh, sort of points that that you've just mentioned in this definition is is the idea of ethos and of moral imperative. And so indeed, this is where it goes beyond the scope of just the UN or, or just international organizations who, who claim this as their mandate. Um, and it really becomes something that is something that we can all do and all practice. Um, and I think that is a, a where if we're going to put some attention and, and effort in improving um, the field as it currently is, we can think about that more generally, not just leaving it to the NGOs or the ICRC or the UN, but rather how are we humanitarian in, in our own work um, in every day in our research as well. Absolutely. And uh, what exactly triggered your interest in humanitarian work? Why did you actually get into it? I know we've been reading a lot about um, what is like the driving factor of people getting into this field. So I'd like to mer learn mer more about this. Maybe Claudia, you can start. Great. Yes. Good. And as we've talked about in our class, um, this, this drive for humanitarian, I mean, I, this is the people who go into this work in general are just deeply empathetic, empathetic and caring people. And so I think that is something that really does motivate a, a vision and, a, and an understanding of suffering and then a desire to redress that in some way. Um, and that, of course, is, is comes with other questions and the importance of understanding why. Why are we motivated? And so I love this question because we are trying to think, well, what got us into this in the first place? And so there are the obvious reasons, the ones that, you know, you see something, you see suffering and you want to try to alleviate it within the extent that you are capable of doing it. Um, but then going more deep. And I think, again, this is a work that I encourage all students to do before embarking on the on the careers of humanitarianism. It's the work that I don't think I did enough, actually. Um, because for me, it was, let's go to the hardest, most difficult, most suffering place that I possibly can, and then try to intervene. Um, and so that comes with a deep sense of, of fulfillment and of purpose. Um, but it also comes with, with all of the sort of the, the unintended consequences of, of deep sort of personal uh, damage and helplessness because you realize that in fact one person cannot make a big, a, a significant difference, certainly not um, as much as one thinks when going into it. So I think when I started my career, you know, my early 20s, it was this deep drive to quote unquote, do good. Um, and then you get a sense of just how dysfunctional so much of the international machinery around humanitarian ism actually is and how a lot of those efforts are actually wasted. And so that's the work that I do and that we're doing um, here a lot at the Graduate Institute is sort of critiquing this, this notion of humanitarian work and how it could be done um, a little bit more effectively. So that's how I engage with humanitarian work now in this, you know, decades later. Uh, so still engaged, still believing that we can have something uh, to contribute to reducing human suffering, but from a different angle, a more critical, more uh, honest for me uh, perspective. Yeah, I think, you know, Claudia summarized the motivations that that drive people to do that kind of work very well. Um, and I mean, the reason why in my class I made you read Liza Malki's book is because I think she talks about this motivation very eloquently in a very fair and true way, I think. Um, and she describes, you know, this drive as a drive that is um, motivated mainly by, you know, by the need, the need that we have, you know, when I say we people in, in a, a position of, of privilege, um, the need we have to be part of something bigger than oneself, the need to be, um, to do something meaningful. Um, and perhaps this awareness of one's own privileges comes with a responsibility for doing something, for doing something for people who are in a less privileged position. Um, but there's something that also I think with time I came to realize is that um, perhaps humanitarians, and it's just food for thought and I throw it here, but maybe humanitarians are, are the new aristocrats in a way, you know, they have this possibility of projecting themselves um, in the world, 
out there uh, beyond the national borders. Uh, they have the means to do it, either because they have the financial means or they have the intellectual means um, because of their education or thanks to their education rather. Um, so it comes really from this position of privilege. And I think we need to acknowledge that, that uh, you know, undertaking a career in humanitarian action often comes with this position of being able to think beyond oneself, one's own family, one's own community. Um, and that's also an important point, I think. There is so much to talk about in what you both said. Like, I'm actually loving it so far, but it would take us days, I think. Like, yeah. But um, I also wanted to say before I started taking Claudia's class on doing good, um, I wanted, I knew I wanted to do humanitarian work, but it was coming from like this point of view where I was like, oh, I'm really ambitious. I want to save the world. I want to change the world. But throughout that class, it actually made me realize, of course, we still want to do good, but it's actually much more difficult than how I imagined it would be. And one person definitely can't save the world on their, on that, on its own. Like, um, that was established for me as well. Um, and I wanted to ask perhaps like if in your experience, if we go to a bit of like aid work, because I know this is like a big part of the humanitarian action work as well. And we've read a lot about this. So if in your experience, how have you seen aid benefit the communities you have worked with? But of course, also what limitations occur with the aid structures in place and why is it actually not working at the moment? Great question, and if only it were so easy to answer. Um, gosh, and because indeed this question is as well, it brings up all these contradictions. And so, and, and there's a very sophisticated architecture now on sort of monitoring and evaluation. And there's a lot of talk about sort of accountability um, to, to the populations, the quote unquote communities. Um, that, that are being served. Um, so there's, I mean, for me, the first place would be, don't ask me, ask the people who have been quote unquote beneficiaries of all this work. Um, and therein lies the great big question, oh, well, how do we actually access the people who are supposed to be being helped? Um, and then you see that there's very little channel, meaningful channel, true communication to actually hear the voices of people who are the targets of, of this humanitarian aid. Um, and so that is a design problem that is for the entire humanitarian system and the aid system and for the donor structures coming back as well to this crucial point that Judy has mentioned about privilege that we should continue to unpack through, through this conversation. Um, so, so, you know, ask the people, what do they think and what is their impact? And so, all right, well, how do you do that? Okay, well, then we need a redesign issue here because are you actually listening to people in the first place? If you're listening to people in the first place, are you actually designing your programs in a way that are indeed responding to what their needs are in the first place? And there you open up a whole new questions. Well, who's deciding which aid is being given to who and when? And often that is an organizational mandate. So if you are an educational agency or NGO, then you're going to be providing uh, schooling support, school materials, teacher training. You know, if you're a medical organization, you're going to be providing mosquito nets, uh, immunization vaccines, uh, clean water, you know, so, so there's all the different ways of intervening that can align and often do in these extreme uh, contexts of, of poverty um, and unprivileged, lack of privilege. Um, so all of those services probably are responding to acute human needs. Um, but then we enter this third question, well, in the long term. So maybe this saves my life today. And that is what humanitarians sort of tend to justify because the most engaged, and, and I think humanitarians are of the smartest and most committed and most engaged people um, who are just working to save lives or sort of do the emergency uh, triage, um, but then when you start asking, well, what about the long-term impacts of that? Then suddenly sort of defenses go up, well, but I'm saving a life. Um, and if we don't save a life, so we're coming back to this, this humanitarian uh, 
the moral obligation, the moral imperative of saving lives first. But okay, today, what about in the long term? And now we have many decades of humanitarian professionalization that we can see, well, what are actually the long-term benefits of this? You know, how many people in whichever uh, local area, quote unquote, community have actually benefited over the last 30 years or 20 years or 10 years? And then the story becomes a little bit clearer. And a little bit uh, more obvious about why uh, activities are not working to the extent of the investment that has been placed to help. And so I think taking a longer term perspective, and now we have the data, and now we have the perspective to truly ask and engage and to say, ah, this isn't working. Um, sorry, Julie, I'm, I'm <laughs> taking such a long time to say that this is complicated. No, but, and, and this is the, another point that I, I just want, hope that we get into this a little bit longer, but then, and so now we're starting to see it. And, you know, since 2015, you know, and, and, and with sort of the, the grand bargain and increased calls for accountability. And so all the structures are coming in place. And then here we go again, technical responses. Um, let's, <laughs> let's localize. And so let's make local people more accountable. And, and, and so then we start following a, a fix, a quick answer um, that actually isn't the right answer because from the very beginning, we've been missing the problems at the foundation, which are back to exactly what Judy said about privilege and, and inequality and distribution of resources. So until we get to those root causes, which are truly part of how the entire global system is organized, uh, we're only ever going to be doing the sort of papering over uh, Band-Aid solutions that, and I argue quite strongly, are actually making the situation worse. And that's the kind of reflection that I think the sector needs to be to be engaging with, um, honestly, um, or the people who uh, these projects are supposed to be helping in the first place. Well, I, I fully agree with you, Claudia. What can I say now? Um, I agree with you. Uh, but perhaps what what can help us understand this aporia is that uh, is to understand. Um, the ways in which humanitarianism functions as a form of care and a form of control at the same time, as I said earlier. I mean, humanitarianism, it's, it's a form of mobile sovereignty, to use the expression of, of Mariela Pandolfi, um, a form of mobile sovereignty that in many contexts around the world has come to replace the welfare function of the state. So many people on this planet can, can only rely on humanitarian aid to meet their basic needs, to meet their needs in terms of healthcare, education, or food. That's, for instance, the case of uh, people living in refugee camps. Let's take this example. The paradox here is that uh, the camp form creates the conditions under which people are maintaining a situation of dependence towards aid. So because people living in camps are restricted in their movements, because they have no access to employment opportunities or school for their children, because they cannot grow their own food, they can only rely on humanitarian organization to survive, right? So the French um, anthropologist Michel Agier envisions the camp as a paradigmatic humanitarian space, as a space designed to manage the undesirable. And indeed, people living in camps are, are maintained in a permanent state of exception, whereby, they, they, whereby their lives um, are reduced to biological life, to say it quickly, or to bare life, if you like, to use the expression of the Italian philosopher uh, Giorgio Agamben that you read in class. So their lives are measured in terms of calories or liters of drinkable water they are able to access every day. And the question that this raises is whether humanitarian action can foster more meaningful forms of life beyond lives in emergency, yeah? So that's what Claudia was, was saying about thinking about the long term. What, what is the meaning of a life that is limited in that way? But beyond the camp, which is really perhaps the most emblematic you know, space of humanitarian action, we can think of other forms of humanitarianism that maintain population in a permanent, permanent state of vulnerability. I'm thinking, for example, of the ways in which uh, undocumented migrants in France can only access residency permits on humanitarian grounds. That is, if they have unincurable diseases such, such as HIV AIDS, for example. And this gives them the right to stay on the territory to get treatment. And yet this does not give them the right to work. So here you see another example of how humanitarianisms 
um, simultaneously functions as, as a form of care, but also a form of control that maintains people in, in a state of vulnerability. And that's, that's why, I mean, I think, you know, we need to invent other ways, uh, other ways of caring for each other. Um, we need to reinvent this relationship of inequality that is reinforced by the humanitarian system and that creates, you know, saviors versus victims or beneficiaries. Totally agree. I think I think that's a beautiful thing to say. We need to find new ways to actually start caring for each other. And um, from what you've been both saying, I think the important things that stick out, which I actually wrote on my blog um, uh, for the thought project we organized as well, is that we really need people who acknowledge their privilege in humanitarian work. So we need self-aware, empathetic and people who actually listen because um, I think we can now talk a bit about the local population's voice here as well. But it's such an important aspect of humanitarian work because um, us going there as the privileged people from the outsider, we have to acknowledge this with us. So what is the importance of this inclusion of the local population in humanitarian work, as we've discussed before, but perhaps we can elaborate a bit more on it? Wonderful, yes, and and Birso, you you've tapped into it uh, perfectly. This importance of listening, and I'll come back to just what I said at the at the very beginning, um, is the design of the current humanitarian system doesn't allow for listening, um, because that takes time, you know. And and again, if we if we think of all of this from ourselves, how how do I feel? How do I want to be treated? You know. And if if we could design programs and policies based on that, I think we'd already be far further ahead than we actually are because listening takes time um, and it takes building trust, right? And so this, you need to be there. You need to spend time and then you need to show up for what you're promising. And again, I think that the sector has become uh, much more professional over the last years. Um, but if you're actually gonna listen to people, first of all, to design the intervention based on what they need, um, that's one thing. When the intervention isn't working, because of course, this is this is human programming. So of course there's gonna be mistakes and then the conflict might re-erupt. Uh, maybe the aid is part of the conflict. Um, you know, all these sorts of shifting dynamics, when things aren't working according to plan, what do you do? You need to adapt them, right? Again, there's not the space for that because all of the accountability quote unquote measures that have been put in place after all of these years um, are accountability to who? to the donors. Um, I've told you the story before, at least in class, I'm sure I did, where I was, I was doing an evaluation. I've stopped doing them. Obviously, back to our, to our moral imperative, my ethos is like, I cannot do any more evaluations. But here I was in, in Congo, in Kinshasa, the capital, you know, and I'd, I'd been working, I worked in the Congo for you know, a span of 10 years. And, you know, towards the end of that, it was actually my very last evaluation. And I was sitting in Kinshasa, you know, in the fancy hotel, drinking my $10 cappuccino in the morning. And I just looked across the pool terrace with all the other sort of singular people with their laptops at a desk, uh, drinking their $10 cappuccinos. And I saw a woman next to me and I don't, I don't know, I think I saw something that was on her desk, on her, on her table. And it was like, <laughs> I was doing a study for USAID on education and access to, to education for, for young people out of school. She had a diffid uh, UK former uh, aid organizations report on her next to her laptop. And as I was getting up, I said, oh, you're doing this. This is what I'm doing. And she's like, oh, I'm doing it. Turns out the two of us were doing <laughs> almost exactly the same research um, from the US and the UK. However, they were both part of the same funding mechanism. So actually we were working for the same project, just two different pillars of it. And so we sat down and we talked and we shared some experiences and I was pulling out my hair as I, as I still do all these years later, remembering that. And I was like, isn't this crazy? Like, why, why are we not actually responding to what these young people have been asking for their families, their children for all of these years? It's written, look at all this proof, all these documents. Where is this so-called accountability? Because that was, you know, the, the, the grand uh, uh, bargain period when that was all being drafted. And she just looked at me blank, blank faced, big eyed and said, but my accountability is to, um, oh, to the American people. Sorry, I was different. She was, she was USAID. And um, so her accountability was to the American people. You know, it's on it. It's, it's on the, the bumper stickers and the wheat bags and, and all of that. 
And that was just so surprising to me that someone who's very professional, very intelligent, can only be thinking about the accountability to her employer, to, to the aid agency who's they are being accountable to their, to their taxpayers. Um, and so, so that whole question of sort of turning it back down, realigning who is this accountability for? And I think again, caring, engaged individuals all make sense of that. The individual donor, you know, the tech person who is sitting in capital also wants that. So then we need to put our brains together, you know, and these new ways that Julia is talking about, well, how can we truly be responsive to the people who, by the way, and again, this beautiful idea of, of aristocracy, who we have mandated ourselves to protect, right? No one asked me to come in to protect them, but I, with my arrogance and my privilege, went in to protect. Um, so again, this idea of improving the lives, the bodies of, of others, I think that's a whole nother area that needs some very honest and critical reflection as well. Well, indeed, I think you've, your example shows really, uh, Claudia, the ironies of accountability. Um, and that's, uh, that's quite an amazing story and yet, I think a very banal story at the same time, this is what makes me a bit sad. There's been also this, this discussion around localization, the localization of aid, um, it's a topic that is very much discussed at the moment. And it's really seen as a, as a good solution for you know, empowering populations, for giving them ownership and reduce, reducing the costs of aid programs. But I think, you know, without a broader reflection on how to reduce global inequalities, this solution will not lead to, will not lead us very far, in fact. Um, the root causes that make humanitarianism necessary will remain largely unaddressed. And to me, a more important and fundamental question, and we go back to square one, actually, is, you know, how can we create a world where humanitarianism is no longer necessary? How can we create the conditions for a world where emergencies will no longer be endemic? Um, how can we reinvent North-South relationships whereby the global North is no longer in a position of aid provider or savior and the global South in a position of aid recipient or victim? I mean, is it possible to imagine global solidarity beyond the politics of compassion that sustains this hierarchy. I think that, that these are questions to which I do not have any answer. But um, I really think that you know these terms such as accountability to affected populations or um, localization, you know, they they do not help us find the answers to these broader questions, which seem to me much more important. Um, it's not to say that. Uh, we should get rid of humanitarianism altogether. You know, it's, it's really not the point. But how do we make sure that um, um, the way we care for each other does not reproduce hierarchies, uh, that it leads us towards um, forms of solidarity that, uh, that help us live together equally on this planet? That's really the big question. Yeah, and while you, you were both speaking, I remembered um how I thought that humanitarian work was functioning but like how in reality it's actually quite different because then it comes to me as absurd to go to these people who already have their own oven and you know like to to put it in a metaphorical way who have their own bread in their oven but I'm bringing them another bread and I'm like you know what it's actually better than yours so take mine so it kind of feels a bit absurd that we're not doing this in a localized way where we're addressing their root causes and actually helping the symptoms as well but we're um we're imposing our arrogance and privilege on them and I think what now is with me is that you know no one asked me to come protect them like Claudia said like this is this is going to stay with me and I'm going to be thinking about it after our discussion um coming back to aid work I mean we've been talking about it but I know that aid work is meant to be neutral and apolitical and we've been discussing it within the class with Julie as well about neutrality and I kind of want to ask whether neutrality is a myth you know because I know we've talked about it in the fact that if you're a humanitarian worker and if you went to a conflict you'd pick a side and I was wondering um because you know are we pretending that aid work because 
neutral and apolitical, but when in reality, actually, this is totally different. I mean, this this neutrality, the the idea that we could actually um, be equal to both sides or be perceived by all sides and to provide help to, to both sides in the same way, that should be possible. Um, but as you, you say in your question, I mean, this is political work. You know, why does intervention happen in one country and not another, in one time or not another, on one side of the border and not on the other? So just the ability to be in a place has already been politically negotiated by the UN Security Council, by sort of post-colonial sort of uh, relationships that, that maintain. Um, so there's a lot just to unpack on like arriving in the first place, could you have even been neutral in the first place? So if you do arrive and you do provide like MSF, like other organizations, ICRC, you're gonna provide to whoever uh, needs the help. And so, yes, that is possible. Um, I would rather on this, and I would like Judy to say to say more, but on the neutrality is crucial for building trust. So then we come back to the same issue. Like, are people going to trust you when you're there? And if they don't, then to understand why not. Um, and then again, now we have decades worth of experience and some of these you know, places that are still termed emergencies are actually chronic uh, crises that are decades in the making. You know, some of these refugee camps, children have been born and will die in refugee camps, you know? And so, so there's no way to claim legitimacy that what you're doing is actually helping and thus you can't really be trusted and thus your position as a neutral actor is questionable. Um, so I think we, we look at it in, in that way. And if, and my tendency to, um, when humanitarians talk about their neutral position is, is sort of a, a raised eyebrows to say, well, what does that really mean? And, and why is it so comforting to say that this work is, work is apolitical? You know, what is that trying to hide? Um, and again, this is going to be different, different people are going to have different perspectives on this, but, um, I am, I am wholeheartedly, uh, political in my work because for me personally, all of this is political. My research is political. Um, I wouldn't do it otherwise, you know? Um, but again, that's going to be different. If I was a medical doctor, you know, it would be saving lives. Um, and if we now look at back to the biopolitics and, and whose lives are saved, whose lives are worthy of saving, what quality of life, again, that immediately takes it back into the political, even though sort of the objective saving of a life is thought to be um, to be neutral. I, I think that's, that's, that's right. I think neutrality, uh, neutrality in humanitarian action is mostly mythical. I mean, we see that when when some situations are qualified as emergencies requiring immediate action, and when, when other equally dramatic situations remain un unnoticed, there is an evident link between states' economic interest and the humanitarian military intervention they're involved in. So most you know, NGOs, international organizations, follow the conflicts which, um, and the intervention, which have been, you know, um, supported or not by the Security Council, for instance. So, so that's that's one one you know one aspect. But I think uh, um, we need to think of neutrality as a practice, uh, as a practice, um, as a strategy of access. I think it's helpful to think in neutrality in these terms. Um, indeed, as you've mentioned, uh, Claudia, neutrality uh, helps humanitarian workers get the trust they need in order to intervene. So um, neutrality is certainly mythical, but it's also necessary and important for humanitarian actors whose work is, is to bring relief, right? So maintaining an image or reputation of neutrality is what legitimizes humanitarian, humanitarian action. See in Syria how certain population are qualified by the state as terrorist groups and therefore unworthy of aid. Um, so, so that's, you know, the role of humanitarian organizations to actually negotiate access by using the leverage of neutrality. Um, but, but there is also another form of neutrality, which is equally important when you're doing emergency work, I think, and it's the emotional neutrality. You need to block some of your emotion to be able to act. Uh, and if you're a medical doctor, I mean, some, it's something that you've you've learned to develop, you know, um, um, this affective neutrality that helps you, you know, repair a body. Um, uh, 
But the International Committee of the Red Cross, which I know best, is very orthodox with neutrality. And perhaps other organizations are a bit less. I mean, I think that the case of Doctors Without Borders, for instance, which, you know, which is more ambivalent about neutrality. You know, MSF will, will decide at some point whether it's better to actually, you know, um, bear witness and um, advocate and uh, and denounce, um, whereas the ICRC will will not be um, as um, pressured to to uh, to break neutrality. Um, I think it's a more enduring organization in that sense. It will try to exhaust all the other means before denouncing a situation. It has done so occasionally. I think it has done so in, in, in Myanmar, for instance, where the ICRC was visiting um, uh, forced labor camps um, in the hope that its presence would um, you know, would prevent torture and ill treatments. And in fact, it, it, it made it worse. And eventually they decided to denounce um, the conditions in these forced labor camps. Um, and ultimately it had to leave the country. So you see, I mean, it's a very difficult um, principle to implement in practice. Um, and it's really an art, I'd say, the art of neutrality, uh, the art of of negotiating access, um, um, which I think you know, organi different organizations um, have different different position with regard to that principle, um, and and I think with various with different effects. But I think you know, also humanitarian organizations are very much aware of how they complement each other in their work. You know the. I think the ICRC can be very orthodox in its implementation of neutrality because there is a MSF that is going to denounce, because they know that there will be Amnesty International that is going to do the work of denouncing, of you know, raising the, the attention of the international community. Um, so it can be orthodox uh, in its, in its um, conception of neutrality because others are doing the other job, right? Yeah. No, I actually learned a lot throughout this. So um, that has been quite useful for me as well. But I think um, now kind of tying back it all together and coming to like a bit of a finishing point, um, we've been we've been critical about humanitarian work. And of course, we said that we shouldn't get rid of it entirely all. But I think the question I have and perhaps our listeners have and all the students at the Institute as well, and I know we don't have an answer, but perhaps we can start talking about it a bit. But what's the alternative that you think is better suited to address the goal of aid work and humanitarianism? Because I know we've been talking a lot with Claudia on her doing good class that I personally realized doing good is definitely more complicated than what I like I thought it was. So um, what could be an alternative? Wonderful. Yeah, so it's, it's great. And indeed, this needs to be a conversation that keeps going and reflections that we keep uh, in the front of our minds. And we keep, you know, asking each other, you know, we keep we hold ourselves accountable to each other as well. Um, how Julie has just talked about sort of uh, the different actors. I, I really love that. And I think that is an opportunity for this, this new way of doing humanitarianism, like really having the different actors with their different comparative advantages shine and collaborate. And, and I know sometimes that happens, often it's just relationship based, um, but there is a lot that could be happening happening in this constellation of, of aid work where it could be reinforced. And so each organization knows their role and then work in collaboration with, with the others to actually have a broader collective impact. And so that's really where I think the world is in great need that we join forces, whatever our forces are to come together towards a shared aim of reduced inequality, reduced suffering. Um, so that is one thing already very concretely. Um, and that also, that starts, you know, so we always talk about sort of knowing yourself first. Um, and that's very important. And I hope the Graduate Institute, you know, provides that support to the students so that as students are leaving the Graduate Institute, you know, you know the kind of student that you're going to get that comes from the Graduate Institute because they've kind of been branded, branded with this ethical, engaged way of, of working in the world. Um, and so here you are. And so you know yourself, you know you're going to want to be 
an advocate. You know you want to be sort of frontline worker. You know you want to be a donor working in Brussels or Paris or or London or wherever. You know you're going to run an oil company in a you know in a sustainable and ethical way. So here we are. Can we build this sort of network effect? And you go into the organization that you know fits with you. Because if you are at heart someone who is strident and who is going to sort of uh, decry, and we need those people, you know, as Judy said, we need the amnesties, we need the MSF, we need the different people, as well as we need sort of the the orthodox. Like I, I want an orthodox doctor. I have to say, <laughs> I'm going to be on the operating table. I need someone who is going to be cool and and get me saved. Um, so, so you know, so just knowing ourselves, knowing where we fit into the system, and then seeing if we can link forces, joining up with each other. That's one answer. I would say to be hopeful because you you, you have all tried to help me uh, be more hopeful in, in, in that kind of work. Um, and the and the other thing is really is to just do start from within, you know, and and do this work. You can be humanitarian every single day in every single interaction in every single thought. And we talk about the one thousand little actions that make integrity, that make courage, that make leadership. And so that is what we need to do. And I think that will have a much larger impact um, in the world than than we could ever imagine. Rather than going over there to do this quote unquote good, let's start from home. Um, and then that will inform how we interact and how how we study, how we become policymakers um, to make something that I think more meaningfully uh, is humanitarian in, in the bigger bigger scheme of things. Yeah, that's beautifully put, Claudia. Uh, perhaps another helpful term here could be um, the term interdependency. I think if we are able to see um, or interdependencies, um, we may be able to imagine care beyond humanitarian work. I think some people on this planet know that already. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, indigenous groups, for instance, who make the link between the need to protect the planet to protect life in the broad sense of the term. They've, they don't have this kind of, um, dichotomic way of thinking the earth and humans. Yeah, they think holistically and perhaps we need to draw inspiration from them to, to think about how we are all interrelated, how the problem of a person somewhere else is my problem actually. So um, how the problem of global warming, you know, affecting people um, in the Pacific ocean, you know, is also my problem ultimately. Um, so that's that's one one thing. Um, I think we can also draw inspiration from people who have made the experience of living in a permanent state of vulnerability. I'm thinking, you know, um, of Africa, which you know I'm sure better than me, Claudia. But uh, I think people who have made the experience of, you know, slavery, colonialism, they've developed this. Um, this intimate knowledge of um, how to repair, how to repair things, you know, and I think Africa is a fabulous laboratory of reparation. People repair everything. Um, they recycle everything. There is a huge creativity, but they've repaired their memories. They're trying to repair their bodies, you know, so, so perhaps we can learn from, from, from them as well. Um, so that we make life on this planet much more sustainable. Um, so I don't know if it's, uh, you know, if it's a, a, a response that can be helpful, but for me, you know, um, um, it helps me think beyond the dominant framework of humanitarianism to try and imagine something, something different where international solidarity um, can be reactivated. You know, as I told you in class, when I started to be attracted to humanitarian work when I was your age, you know, I was in my 20s and I just graduated with my master's degree. Um, at least in France, we were not talking about humanitarianism as much, we were talking about international solidarity. And I like this idea. I like this idea of international solidarity. I found that, yeah, actually that's what being no borders should be about. Um, uh, it should be about, um, feeling that you can be, you know, in solidarity with someone who is not a relative, someone who is not, you know, a friend, 
someone you've never seen and yet someone you feel you have to care for yeah because it could be you so um so yeah that's what i would answer perhaps thinking in terms of inter interdependencies and in terms of solidarity that's actually a very good concreting point from both of you and actually i think interdependency is my answer to doing good as well because once you see that everyone is just like you i think that's that's like the main motivation you could get in terms of making trying to make the world a better place and um being self-aware in this process as well so maybe hopefully this could be a start of the answer for our questions and before we finish it off because we this podcast is named there's no women no peace and our main idea is to actually have the voices of women who are bringing peace to the world uh, and i know julie is very humble about this but she she's great um but we wanted to ask perhaps if you've experienced any differences being a woman in this field and maybe finishing it off as like what are your suggestions for women who want to work in this field as well Goodness, well, back to this idea of authenticity, knowing yourself, um, and then just sort of going for it. So if we still are holding on to old sort of gendered notions of, of what is appropriate, appropriate behavior based on, on sex, let those go. Um, just go in from your heart. And what happens in humanitarianism and protection, which was my field in particular, is that you're kind of sort of uh, condescended to in particular by military. So much of my work was in working with uh, peacekeeping. Um, and so, and most of the professionals, the international professionals were almost always women and the national professionals were always, always men, which is again, an interesting uh, dichotomy there. Um, but just to let that go, don't, don't let yourself be sort of uh, brought down because of what people perceive to be a gendered approach to how to do the work. Um, and, and, and to confront and, and to not, to not be afraid to stay strong and to stay principled. Why, why are we here? What are we doing? Um, knowing who the allies are, I would say that perhaps within the United Nations military context, being a woman was, uh, could have been quite belittling, but actually I, I didn't let it, you keep fighting, but be aware that there will be fights that need to be fought. Um, you don't have to do them alone. And I think that's another important thing, which is why I think this is a good question. Uh, finding allies and working on it together and not necessarily allies of one sex or another, but just sort of common common force people who are going for the same bigger end is, is a good thing. Um, and then um, sometimes also knowing the opportunities, you know, knowing the opportunities. So for example, my work with uh, rebel commanders was very facilitated. And I don't think it's because I was at that point, a young woman, um, but it was rather an approach. Um, and it was approach of, of trying to be humble, of empathy, of listening. Um, but that was me as Claudia, the child protection uh, officer. Uh, maybe someone would say that was because I was a young woman, but I, I actually wouldn't say that. And I, I think we should, rather than thinking about sort of sex, gender, we think about, well, what are the qualities, the human qualities, the humanitarian qualities that obviously for me transcend um, something about gender. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, my, my first, um, one of my first humanitarian experience um, was in Afghanistan, which was also a very militarized context and therefore um, a very masculine environment. And I believe uh, quite comparable to the one that Claudia just described to you. Um, so, so I felt... Uh, at the time, um, quite impressed by yeah, this very masculine environment in which I had to work. Actually, I was one of the first in this small medical French medical organization which recruited me to do that job. Um, I was one of the first uh, uh, women humanitarian worker uh, to join the team, uh, which was you know a very masculine team. Um, but this being said, I also felt that I was mostly policed by my colleagues uh, uh, and not by Afghan people at all, actually. You know, so I felt, you know, the comments I received on the way I closed, whether, you know, I was covered enough and so on and so on and so forth. These comments came from my male colleagues and I felt that very, you know, very misguided, um, very patronizing um, because, I mean, I was the best, you know, 
um, how people reacted to the way I was dressed. And I was, I was paying attention to dress properly, you know, according to the context. Uh, I found that quite troubling. So I think, you know, if, you, if young women are willing to start working in that field, they need to be aware of this masculine environment in which they will work. And yet they need to trust themselves and be confident. You know, if you've decided to do that job, it's because you have it in you and you will be able to do it. Uh, but more, more importantly, um, I think what women can bring to that masculine field is another ethos. You know, you don't need actually to act like a man to make a difference. Actually, you've got something different to bring as a woman. It's not to essentialize, you know, the way women are, but I think they are, you know, values or um, yeah, a certain ethos that is associated with femininity. Uh, and we should be mainstreamed and it's a value of care, it's a value of humility, it's a value of understanding and of course many men have these values as well. Uh, but unfortunately my feeling is that because you know humanitarianism is so much unmeshed with um, military intervention that this masculinist ethos um, is, is, has become dominant. Um, and that's why I think as women, you know, intervening in this field, we can, we can offer a different model. Um, and we should, uh, um, I think we should, I think, uh, and this is where I think we, we make a difference, a real one. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for these as well. And I think we've got, um, a lot to learn from you both. And I could listen to you speak for like ever, uh, but it, before we finish it off, if you have anything to add, feel free to do so. Um, and otherwise, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Jason, also for making it happen. Um, it has been delightful to teaching this class with you as my students uh, this term. So uh, thanks a lot for everything you do. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It's it's been wonderful, Birsu, Jason, and all colleagues. Judy, I have loved listening to every single thing you've said. I can't wait to collaborate with you. Um, and, and to Birsu and Jason, I mean, this is this we're learning from you too. You know, I feel like if I if I keep going, it's because I feel like I owe it owe it to you. And and there's very um, there's great value in in continuing these kinds of exchanges so that we can actually indeed live up to the best of of what we have and the privileges that we have. Um, so it, it's wonderful that you're, you are leading uh, students on these kinds of reflections as well. So keep going. We are with you. Oh, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure having this discussion with you too. Uh, wishing you a perfect day. Thank you all for listening. We will be back soon with another inspiring episode. Have a great day.